Hello, Deep State Radio listeners. Fall is approaching, and we at Deep State Radio have been busier than ever, bringing you the latest news and analysis of the foreign and domestic policy stories that matter most. Members now receive more content than ever, as we've expanded our content and bonus offerings to include all shows in the network. Members also receive an invitation to the DSR Slack community, an ad-free listening experience, and much more. And this fall, we will expand our offerings further with several seasonal projects in the works. To celebrate, we're offering membership at just $5 per month. To take advantage of this offer, please visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy. There is no need to enter a promotion code. That's thedsrnetwork.com slash bye. Thank you. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, David Rothkopf, and we are coming to you towards the end of another early week in September, joined by a guest, our friend Simon Rosenberg, who has founded and led NDN. How long, Simon? 26 years. Wow. I know. Uh, and if, if you could see what I see is completely unchanged in that time. <laughs> but we're not going to talk about beauty tips here today. <laughs> I, I really want to talk about where we are with the upcoming campaign. You know, I've talked to you a lot over the course of the past year and almost alone among the sort of most prominent set of Democratic strategists and analysts, you've thought that the Democrats had a chance. And you've been been probably, in in my estimation, the best summarizer of what the message ought to be. And it seems to me like the punditocracy are catching up to you. And that, you know, I'm starting to see views that sort of suggest that it looks like the Democrats will hold the Senate. It looks like they might get a couple of additional seats. And in the past week, kind of astonishingly, I'm starting to see people to say, well, the Democrats might, and it's a big might, actually, if they don't become too complacent, hold the House. And so the place I want to begin is, what does it look like to you? Yeah. uh, Thank you, David. And thanks for all that you do. Um, I think I'm one of your biggest fans. Let me tell you what I think has happened in this election. The Republicans made, took a a huge political risk by running towards MAGA, which was a politics that had been overwhelmingly rejected by the American people in the last two elections. You know, we've won those last two elections by an average of six and a half points. That's a lot. They've only averaged 46% of the vote since Donald Trump won the nomination in 2016. And so this was not a successful politics for them. And they ran towards it. And once they did that, the chance of them having a really good midterm was significantly diminished. I wrote my first piece making this argument I'm making now in November of last year, 
where I argued that you were already seeing a decoupling of the Biden approval rating and what we call the congressional generic. And one of the reasons why is that there was a, more people voted against MAGA in the last two elections than any other political movement in American history. And it was never going to be easy for them to pick up those voters and, and peel some of those voters off. And so I think the Republicans made a big error. And then two big things have happened since, right? One is obviously this amalgam of things that reminded the anti-MAGA majority of the reasons they didn't vote for MAGA in the last two elections, which are the January 6th committee hearings, the obviously the ending the row and the abortion restrictions, the mass shootings, Trump's just ongoing depravity and malevolence and illegality and crime, criming as we call it. And all of those things have congealed into this big, ugly thing that has made it impossible for voters to look away from what the Republican Party has become. But the other thing that happened is that gas prices and inflation have come way down. And it's given an opportunity for Joe Biden to reintroduce his presidency to people who may have been a little bit skeptical. So voters have gotten a whole lot of reasons why they shouldn't vote Republican, and they've gotten a whole lot of reasons why they should still go vote Democrat. And what's happened is the congressional generic, this measure of will you vote Democrat or will you vote Republican, has shifted to about four points, four to five points in our direction, that Biden's approval rating has come up almost nine points, which is an enormous gain in just a very short period of time. And to your point about what does that mean for the election? Well, the you know experts believe that Democrats need to win the House by about two to three points to keep the House, right? We need to get, you know, we need to win the general election by two to three points. And I think that's where we are right now. And today, what was astonishing is that Fox News this morning published their latest poll, which had us up 44-41 by three points. And then they then wrote something really important, which is based on our modeling. This means that Democrats keep the House. That's in Fox News today. Republicans woke up to that information being published on the Fox News website. So I think the way to think about this is that we have a very competitive election. Things are really close. How the two parties close in the coming months and how hard everybody works could determine what happens. But certainly this is not a red wave. This is a competitive election. And, and I would rather be us than them at this point. I'd rather be us than them for a lot of reasons. I know. Too. But let's sort of break that down a little bit. I was listening to some show yesterday. I think it was Nicole Wallace show. And the discussion turned to Republicans have traditionally run as values voters. And Democrats have traditionally given white papers and too many issues. And the, the, you know, the Republicans have kind of liked that. In this election, the Republicans have gone sort of to the extreme of, of not having much of an agenda. And what agenda they have advanced cuts viscerally to not just democratic values issues, but sort of human values issues in the United States, which is they want to take the rights of women away. They want to take the rights of voters away. They are fundamentally racist. They support a corrupt ex-president who tried to gut democracy. They're trying to gut democracy themselves. You know, the Democrats all of a sudden find themselves being the one riding the visceral emotional wave. Is that an accurate? It's, a, it's an interesting way to look at it. I mean, certainly one measure of that, right? A couple, we have a couple of measures of that in terms of just what it's done to the electorate is there have been five House special elections since Roe ended, starting on the 28th of June in different parts of the country, right? In Minnesota, Alaska, New York. We, in those five elections, 
we have performed seven points better on average than we did in 2020. There was an enormous surge for us that was unexpected. It wasn't in the polling and it wasn't actually expected by the campaigns on the ground. And in New York, to give you an example, New York 29, the special that we won in, I mean, New York 19 that we won just a couple of weeks ago, the internal polling of the campaign had us losing that election by three to four points and we won by two and a half points. And so that signals intensity, emotion, and passion, right? That you're seeing repeated overperformance of polls and expectations. The second data point to back you up, David, is that there's now, we now are getting a lot of information about voter registration since June 24th, and also requests to, you know, in the states where you can request a mail ballot. And in all the states that we have data, the number of women who are either registering or voting in the states, Kansas and those five states, you know, those five other elections or requesting mail ballots is significantly above where it was either before June 24th or where we were two years ago, which again is a, is a representation of what you're talking about, that this isn't just that there is an emotional and deeply held set of things happening with voters that are fundamentally changing the electorate as we head towards this election. Women, and particularly young women, by the way, where you're seeing the biggest increase is with young women in, in registration and in requests and in voting. And it signals that, you know, that there is, that this election has fundamentally changed. And yes, there is a deep passion and emotion in this election that didn't exist before. And I think the thing to think about, I think as we just game out, because you do big picture stuff here, David, is that imagine if you're a 24-year-old Latina in Texas, right? And you now have this trigger law in effect. And it means that if you get pregnant and you have a miscarriage, there's now some percentage chance that you could die on a table. And whereas two weeks ago, that wasn't true. And that the Republicans did that. That's how fundamentally your life has now been changed. Do you think that young Latina in Dallas is ever going to vote Republican again the rest of their lives? And the stakes of what's happening here, the sort of shock to the system has been profound. And you usually don't see elections shifting dramatically quickly. It's almost it almost never happens, right? Things move gradually. A big event happens. It's like a throwing a boulder in a pond and you know or a rock in a pond, it sort of gradually permeates out. That's not what's happened. There's been there was an immediate shift in attitudes. Navigator, for example, saw the favorability of Republicans dropping by 24 points among independent voters in the two weeks after Roe was ended. That's a dramatic change. And so, yes, there's a lot of passion and intensity and energy on our side for good reason, obviously, right? The Republicans are presenting themselves as a threat to the American way of life and on many different levels. And people are understand it. They understood it already because they had voted against MAGA in very large numbers last two elections. But Republicans, I think, and I think Sarah Longwell from who works with Bill Crystal has said it very well, which is that we're witnessing a major American political party descend into madness. And and that and that, you know, people get it. And I think that um, there's wind at our back. We have much, we have a much better closing argument than they do. I mean, what's their closing argument, David? You were saying this. They've made no effort to present any kind of agenda. No one has any reason to vote for Republicans. And what we're largely going to get in the next two months is various versions of Republican depravity, whether it's dumping a bunch of immigrants in Martha's Vineyard, 
against their will last night or all the various things that Trump is doing. It's like a circus of depravity and malevolence. And I don't I think it's going to be a daily reminder to voters who are already skeptical of the Republicans about why they just can't go there this time. So Ron DeSantis, where did he go? Yale or Harvard or someplace? You know? Both, by the way, both. Both. Right. So these guys are not all idiots. They can see this. Clearly, the strategy that they've been embracing is the strategy to win primary elections, you know, to get that MAGA base to help them win a primary. And clearly, that does not work in general elections. It didn't work, as you pointed out, in the last couple of presidential or the last big congressional election. And yet, Ron DeSantis puts a bunch of immigrants on a plane and fly them to Martha's Vineyard. Where, by the way, you know, unsurprisingly, the people of Martha's Vineyard say, we'll take care of you. They reach out. They do something capacitive. Even more astonishingly, I, I think, Lindsey Graham, who used to be what we would consider a reasonable Republican, but clearly had a high fever at some point in the interim and has lost his bearings, yesterday comes out and says, no, I want a national abortion ban. You know, I want to take this thing that has inflamed everybody and abandon our position that we really want states to have their own position on this. And I want to ban it nationally after 15 or 16 weeks. Trump goes on TV yesterday and supports the most violent of the January 6th terrorists. So he's being depraved, as you say. What's going on? How is it that these people are doing these inflammatory, reckless, clearly self-destructive things? Or do they know something, you know, we don't know? I mean, are we missing something? David, look, you're the historian, and you're far more schooled in this than I am. However, I'm a domestic political guy, and we're all watching this play out right now. And I think what the way I explain this in plain English is that the Republican Party has been overtaken by extremism and extremists, and that they've lost control. I mean, this is really what happened. They lost control of their party in 2016 to Trump. And even, you know, the Republican establishment worked really, really hard to prevent the candidates who won for Senate in New Hampshire and Pennsylvania and Ohio, right? There were huge efforts to prevent these candidates from winning that failed. Right. This was an, uh, you know, there was enormous, McConnell put enormous amounts of money in New Hampshire to prevent the extremist lunatic that got elected this week in New Hampshire for the Senate. And and they they failed. And so the establishment Republican Party is collapsing and the extremists and extremism have overtaken one of the two American political parties. This is a serious development. Joe Biden was right to talk about the extremism of MAGA several weeks ago. I think he frankly should have done it many, many months ago. I think he was late to the party to some degree about about talking to the American people about the threat that we really face. And it's a threat across multiple levels. That's the important thing. You know, it's the question of large numbers of election deniers are going to get elected. And I think even the term election denier is too sanitized. And we have to find a, a better term for that because it's far more dangerous than it implies. It sounds very benign. It's hardly benign. And that the, you know, the battle that we're in here and also abroad in Russia, I mean, one of my fears, David, and one of the things I'd like to come back and talk to you about, you know, offline or in one of these shows is we've now just seen this a center-right party emerge in 
Sweden, uh, center right coalition emerge in, in Sweden. We, we are going to see a far right leader win in Italy. And the key now is that we have to make sure that the coalition that is leading the fight against Putin prevails. And so the struggle to preserve the West, our way of life, democracy, liberal democracy, sane civil society is waging not only here domestically, but also what's happening on the ground in Europe and Ukraine. And the stakes of these things could not be higher. I am pleased with what I'm seeing here. I think we're going to have a really good midterm. I think in the next two months, it's far more likely that we gain a couple more points than they do. I don't know how they get out of this sort of negative death spiral of, of information that they're giving every day about their ugly and you know, extremist party. Whereas Joe Biden is doing a really good job at governing well, legislating well, conducting himself well, closing as strong as he possibly can, right? The settlement of the rail strike was a masterful presidential move in the last few days. He deserves enormous credit for that. Last time I was on with you, we talked about how divided and angry the Democratic Party was and how much negative energy there was. Well, I think that's, I think that's past us now. I think that we've come together, right? There's now unity. I see Democrats now working together with more common purpose and common cause than I have in a long time. And, you know, thank God, right? Because the, the stakes of this election, the stakes of what's happening in Ukraine and in Europe couldn't be higher. And then we need to rise to the moment. And what I'm, what I'm pleased about is that this anti-MAGA majority that threw the Republicans out of the House, the Senate, and the presidency in the last two elections seems to be coming together again and ready to do it to prevent them from gaining power this time. That's what we have to hope. But it really is up to us now, right? We all can play a role uh, in all this in terms of the work that we all do. And it's not just what the politicians are going to do or Joe Biden's going to do. We all have to do put as much energy into this and leave it all on the playing field for what is a really deeply consequential election. You talk about the Democrats coming together. I, I think that's right. You talk about the Biden administration hitting their stride at exactly the right moment. I think that's right. Gas prices coming down, the passage of a number of significant pieces of legislation in kind of rapid fire over the past few months, whether it's gun legislation, legislation, uh, chips and science legislation, legislation about veterans and burn pits, or you know, even more significant scaled down version of Build Back Better with the biggest environmental legislation ever in, in U.S. history, significant healthcare legislation. You know, things are going pretty well for the West and its support of Ukraine. America's sort of foreign policy is doing really well. And indeed, I, you know, I've been in discussions among sort of Democrats who are sort of saying, we've got to get the message out that Joe Biden is actually a transformational leader, that this is a transformational presidency, that this is not just about one thing or another thing, but really the, you know, as you've pointed out, the number of jobs created has, has been historic. The growth has been historic. The impact on the deficit, which most people don't talk about, has been historic. Does that matter in this election? Well, it, it's a great question, which is that the only area where Republicans have any kind of significant advantage over us is on the economy. And it's why if I were advising the administration right now, and it's very consistent with the advice that I've been giving since last winter, is that, you know, we need to close with a strong economic part, you know, a strong economic case 
for that. Joe Biden's two years in the White House have made America better and we're better off today. The fundamental thing that an incumbent party is graded on in an election is has, have you made my life better? Not how many bills did you pass, right? But like, am I doing better? And we are doing better as a country and we need to make that case. And I think we need to close the gap on the economy. I think this is really important. The economy is always the number one or number two issue for every voter. And we're, our deficit there is too big for us to feel comfortable because of how important it is. And if something were to happen, if there was any other additional economic shock right between now and the election, we're in a weakened position there. So I think we have a lot of material, David, to your point, right? Record number of jobs created. We're at near, near record at or near record lows in the unemployment rate, in the poverty rate, in the uninsured rate. I mean, there's just so much wages are were positive last month. Wages have come way up under Biden's presidency. I don't know the exact right formula. That's what people who use focus groups and polling sort of figure out how to sell it. But we have a lot to sell and we got to go sell it. I mean, there is a lot of reasons not to vote Republican. But we know from polling and focus groups that there's that people don't really know what Biden's gotten done in the last two years. And the thing that of all the basket of issues that matters most is am I better off? Are things better? And I think we have to go make that case. I think if we can close with a very focused, powerful national campaign on that, I think we're going to have, I think we can win the midterms. I don't think this is about preventing losses. I think this is about, you know, making gains in the House and the Senate. I don't think that's out of the realm of possibility. We are closing strong. They're melting down. I think one of the other things that your, your viewers and listeners should pay attention to is that there's an unprecedented effort now by Republicans to tell Republicans not to vote Republican. We've never seen anything like this. I mean, there were efforts to tell people not to vote for Trump, but now you see Bill Kristol spending $10 million in ads in battleground states saying, with Republicans saying, hi, I'm a Republican, and I don't think you should vote for J.D. Vance, and here's why, and I'm not supporting him, right? We've never had these kinds of, it's Liz Cheney, Bill Kristol, Joe Scarborough, right? Uh, Nicole Wallace, you go down the list. Michael Steele, the former RNC chairman, is out you know, telling Republicans not to vote Republican. Even if that effort shaves off one or two points, which I think it can, the impact of that in the election could be very significant. Because what you're starting to see now in states, there was a big group of Republicans endorsed Gretchen Whitmer in Michigan two days ago. We've seen very prominent Republicans endorse the Democratic candidate for lieutenant governor in Texas. You've seen prominent Republicans endorse Democrats in Pennsylvania and in other states. And so if that can, if that chorus keeps getting bigger and louder, it will bring more and more people in. It creates a permission structure for more Republicans to join the I'm not voting Republican this time. And again, we're only talking about a couple of points here. So I think that's another kind of big wild card in this election that is not getting nearly enough attention. I've never seen anything like this in my 30 years of doing politics in the U.S. And it just tells you where we are. That there is this high, highly organized, highly funded effort of Republicans telling Republicans not to vote Republican. It's an extraordinary thing. Yeah, no, it's amazing. I always feel, though, that I'm kind of going to get this wrong because I spend a lot of time in D.C. or, you know, I'm a you know, I look at these national stories and I see these national polls and the sort of top line stuff, the Trump and the Rose stuff. But I don't know what it's going on in 435 different congressional districts. 
And there's this kind of tendency to stick with the incumbent in those places. And, you know, Nancy Pelosi, the last time around, made a very clear, correct call. She said, you know, whatever our national message may be, let people run on their local politics, right? And so that's why you get Tim Ryan not sounding the same as Warnock in Georgia, because Ohio's different from Georgia. Do you feel that that's happening? Do you get sense that those 435 races are being supported properly? I mean, because we know the Senate story, right? We know that Dr. Oz and Herschel Walker are kooks and, and, and J.D. Vance and, and that they're terrible candidates. But does that carry through? Yeah, look, it's the same election. It's the same dynamic. And what you have to understand is I was part of the DCCC, the House Democratic Campaign Committee in 2018. I played a senior strategy role in us in the effort to flip the House. And so I've been in this game recently, not just for a long time, but I was in it recently. And of course, the strategy in the House is for every race to localize this national conversation, right? To make to make the case not that Donald Trump is bad, but that, that my opponent is extreme in these ways. And all these ways, these things have been tested, right? I mean, there's been testing that has gone on to help candidates make these cases in each individual race. And what's really important for your listeners to understand is that as of the June 30th filing of the candidates, our House incumbents had an eight to one cash in hand advantage over Republicans. The Republican candidates only had a two to one cash in hand advantage over our challengers. And what that means is the grassroots of the Democratic Party have really stepped up for our candidates and given them the resources that they need to tell their story in their own voice in a way that resonates in their own districts. And that's really, really important. I mean, one of the big innovations of the DCCC in the 2018 cycle is we put a major emphasis on helping candidates raise their own money so they can tell their own story in their own voice, and not rely on outside organizations that often have a hard time making ads that really connect with voters when they have to do ads simultaneously in 20 different districts, right? So our part of our strategy has been to strengthen the ability of individual candidates to raise their own money so they have more control of the information environment in their states, in their districts and states. And in every Senate race, our candidates have more money than they do. And it's also true in the battleground House races. And I know the Republicans have a lot of money, but if you had to choose between having lots of money in the outside groups or lots of money in your candidates, you'd rather have your candidates have the money. That's, that's, it's a, that is far more effective for a variety of reasons. So I do feel that as our ads are kicking in now, you know, we're going to be able to tell voters things they didn't know. They don't really know about all the good things that Democrats did. And so I also think that one of the things for your listeners to think about is that what is the information Republicans are going to give voters that they didn't already have? They know inflation's too high. They know that Democrats, they've called Democrats being soft on crime for the last 30 years. And certainly it was a central part of their narrative in 2020. This is not new information. Whereas we have information that we can give to voters that they don't have, which is that the country's better off, the economy has done well, that we've passed all this legislation, that we've rallied to the American people in a time of crisis. These are not things that, that people readily know. We had a hard time breaking through in the last two years. And despite that, we are in a really, I will take where we are in this election. It's not a far going, you know, it's like a tie game in the seventh inning of a baseball game, whatever you want to call it. And we're the home team, right? And so we'll get the last at bat. I, I feel good about where we are. 
And I also feel good that we have more tools in the next two months to close strongly than they do. But we know in this business, anything is possible, David, and, and we all have to leave it all on the playing field. And I'll, I just want to say one thing before we go, because I think this is a new thing, because there's so much now, so many states have enacted early voting or vote by mail. It's really important that all of you vote as early as you possibly can in whatever state you're in, when you ever, whatever the options are of how you vote early, whether it's mail or in person. And the reason why is that once you vote, you come off the GOTV, the get out the vote list of candidates, and they can move on and hit other candidates. And so when you vote early, you're actually creating more votes for Democrats. You're, improve, you're improving our turnout. And it's why, as a national project, we need to educate ourselves about this new electoral reality that really came out post-COVID, where there's so much early voting and vote by mail. The earlier you vote, the more likely it is you can contribute to creating more Democratic voters because it allows the campaign to move into other areas of people who haven't voted. It makes our contacts more efficient. And when I wrote about this yesterday on Twitter, I had a great response from somebody who said that, Simon, it's interesting you say that. In 2018 in my district, I voted on election day and I had three to four canvassers come to my house. In the special election in New York 19, I voted on day one and I never had a canvasser. That meant those three to four canvassers were going to other houses to turn out the vote, right? So we have to recognize now that as part of being a Democrat, you give money, you volunteer, you play a role in the information debate every day, and you also vote as early as you possibly can. This is critical. Yeah, really good point. And, and you know, it's mid-September. So in a lot of places, yeah. people are days away from being able to vote, right? Well, we're seeing in some states you can already request a mail ballot, and we're seeing very, very, very high levels of de elevated levels of Democratic mail ballot requests, just in the way we saw very high levels of Democratic voting in the five specials, House specials, and in Kansas. Our electorate is energized. All the measures of this, every piece of data is telling the same story. It's all coming together, pointing in the same direction which is that Democrats are taking this election really seriously. They're giving a lot of money. They're voting in high numbers. They're registering in high numbers. And they're making requests of early ballots in very, very high numbers. And so, you know, I'm again, it's why I'm optimistic. And remember that in these five House specials, we overperformed our own polling. And so, you know, that's incredibly important to recognize that there is a 25% chance, I think right now, that we're going to actually do even much better than we expected in this election, because I think of all the dynamics that I just described and, and that, you know, they they overperform polling in 2020. It's very possible that we overperform. We've been overperforming polling in 2022. And, and obviously, that's a very encouraging sign about what's going to happen next few weeks. Hey, so this is the point in the program where we typically will say goodbye to the folks who are joining us from the general public and say, we don't want to say goodbye. We'd like you to stay with us. But the way you can do that is by going to the dsrnetwork.com and clicking on membership and signing up to be a member so you can get all the bonus content. Every single podcast we do has about 33% bonus content. Great conversations. I've, I've just finished the conversation with Simon, so I know what he says. It's real inspiring. You don't want to miss it. And being a member costs five bucks a month. It's not much. And it helps us to do what we're doing. 
couldn't be more important right now, as this podcast demonstrates, is going to be extremely important through 2024 for sure and beyond. We'd like to have you as a member. So the DSRnetwork.com, click on membership. And for those of you who are members, we'll be back in one moment. 